Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so, um, before we going, uh, whoops, I'll climb up here. Um, there was a discussion about uh, suicide prevention the other day, and I, I said that they could both be right, both ideas. Turns out, in fact, Jilly was right. Um, if you look at the most recent, with, and recent being in the last 15 years, um, reviews, and I think that's what you look at. You don't look at individual studies for these things. Typically, you look at review papers because they'll, they'll say they've looked at everything and the weight of the evidence goes one way or the other. And the weight of the evidence clearly shows that suicide prevention programs work. Like it's a, it, they just work. The only evidence, and you, if you want to call it that, that they actually cause an increase is the fact that where suicide prevention programs exist, there are more suicides, but that actually just makes sense because where would you put them? You don't put them in places where people are at risk, right? But then if you look at before and after, before the program starts and after, they work. So it's, it's just, it's a given that they work. Uh, it's not impossible, the other interpretation, but it's not the case, right? So it's interesting, and I thought I'd mention that partially because I wasn't sure, but partially because, you know, I mean, that's a public health issue, a public mental health issue. You don't want somebody who, who thinks they're in trouble thinking, oh, I'm not going to call this line because, you know, it might, it might make me worse. All right, so that's that out of the way. Just thought I'd let, that, let you know that. So today we talk about cigarettes, yes, as they used to say in the military and all the old movies, smoke them if you got them, and you can't because we'd all be in a great deal of trouble. Because, uh, you know, you're not supposed to do that. Oh, I think the batteries are dead, really. No, no, um, The active ingredient, of course, in tobacco is nicotine. It's the only place you find nicotine. You probably nowadays could synthesize it, but there's no need to. This stuff grows like a weed. So it's the only plant in nature where you get nicotine. Um, when I was a kid, uh, living in London, Ontario, uh, that part of the world is was tobacco country, right? Mm-hmm. So in fact, people would, uh, high school students after school would go pick tobacco leaves. And so would even like kids in grade eight, because apparently there were no child labor laws in 1977. And they would come in the next day with their hands stained yellow like nicotine because they were picking tobacco leaves, which paid very well. Um, the, the attitudes towards smoking have changed drastically. When I was in high school, there was a smoking area. Right? So students go out there and have a cigarette. There was also, uh, at our high school dances, they were in the um, gym, but in the cafeteria they'd have ashtrays there and you could smoke. The world has changed drastically. Perhaps it is less civilized now, but nonetheless. Um, so the attitudes, it's amazing how much it's changed. It's amazing. In fact, it used to be in the old building in Shinwalk Hall where, um, I don't think they have the signs anymore, but there used to actually be signs that said no smoking in the classrooms. Because it used to be that you could smoke in class, and then they changed the rule, and it's about the mid-70s. Right? So it used to be that oftentimes a professor would come in and say, okay, smokers on the left, non-smokers on the right and people bring an ashtray. Um, I remember going, I went to Western from 84 to 88, and I remember that in the library, you couldn't bring in food, which you still can't now, right? You can't bring food into the library. There's a sign and all that stuff. But you, there was a smoking area. There were study carols that actually had ashtrays in them. 
and you could have a smoke and work on your homework. There used to be smoke breaks in class. If it was a two-hour class, you have a break, and you go outside and you could smoke in the hall. And there were ashtrays everywhere. So it's amazing how much the world changed. And that went from like, in, that was in like 88, they still had that. By the time I came back to Western as a postdoc in 93, all that had changed. There were no smoking areas anywhere except outside. Right? And a lot of university campuses now have gone no smoking anywhere on campus, even outside. You can still apparently drive diesel-powered vehicles, but they're fine for everybody's health. <laughs> I think it's more a matter of aesthetics. We can talk more about that later. Um, so it's amazing how much has changed, and so it's not nearly as ubiquitous as it was. And if you watch even, you go further back, and if you watch an old TV show, I'm not talking about watching Mad Men, which shows everyone smoking and drinking, because that's apparently the way people were back in the 60s. Just watch a TV show from the 1970s, right? If you ever see old reruns of shows, people just smoke. Johnny Carson, you know, used to have an ashtray on his desk, and people came on. Now, now and then, somebody comes on like Letterman. Whenever Sean Penn comes on, he's got a, he's got a butt going. But he's like the only guy. But it used to be like people, like somebody <coughs> pull out a cigarette in the middle of the interview, and Johnny would light their cigarette. It's just the world's really changed. So it's pretty interesting. So cigarettes are increasingly coming under regulatory regimes. For the longest time, tobacco was not regulated as a food or a drug. It wasn't regulated at all. I'm not a conspiracy guy. I think conspiracies are stupid. Because, you know, somebody's going to talk. But this actually was a conspiracy. There's evidence of it. So for the longest time, <laughs> there actually was no regulation. Uh, now they're getting more and more regulated, like in the States by the FDA, uh, in Canada by uh, uh, Health Canada regulates them, things like that. So more and more, they're getting regulated across the world. By, usually by, by the organizations that deal with food and drugs, like the Food and Drug Administration in the States. So it's happening more and more, but it hasn't for the longest time. Up until the early 2000s, they weren't regulated. It's an incredible thing to think of. Right? So the sale of cigarettes, for example, was regulated, but cigarettes themselves, like the active ingredient in them, which is a drug, was not regulated. Well, you can, let's see. Administration of tobacco. You can chew tobacco. You should not swallow tobacco. This is a very large mistake. Has anybody ever chewed tobacco? So it's just a couple of us. <laughs> okay. We all did it when we were playing baseball because it looked, you looked like a major leaguer. So you're 14 years old and you put some chaw. And I, re I remember watching, and I think the pitcher was Steve Carlton, who was pitching for the great pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies, and he used to have a great big thing of chewing tobacco in his mouth, and he swallowed some of the spit. <coughs> There's a reason you spit it out um, because it's nasty tasting, but if you swallow it, you get violently ill very quickly. And he was 40,000 people in the, in the stadium, and he puked all over the pitcher's mouth <laughs> in front of everybody. Is this on YouTube? <laughs> you can find it somewhere. I, I think it was Steve Carlton. But it might have been a different picture. I've, I've, my memory is that it's Steve Carlton. But I remember this happening. And I think it was either the Phillies. It's either the Phillies or the Cardinals. And I know that Carlton played for both teams. That's why I think I've got it as Steve Carlton. It may not have been him. But I know he always had a big thing at Shaw in his mouth. You've seen fewer and fewer ballplayers today like that. In fact, Major League Baseball uh, has pretty much banned it for anybody that comes in new. 
Dennis Martinez, who played for the Montreal Expos, used to always have um, chewing tobacco and, and bubble gum together in a great big ball in his mouth. Yeah. No, but he, was, he pitched a perfect game like that. So. Then again, uh, what's his name? Uh, I forget his name. He's a pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates that pitched a perfect game on acid. Who is that? I can't remember his name. I'll have to look that up from by the time we get to the hallucinogenic uh, section. I, I just watched the movie uh, uh, Moneyball last night, so I'm just thinking about baseball analogies constantly right now. Um, so this is metabolized pretty much by first pass metabolism in the liver. It goes in through mu mucous membranes, right? Uh, which also should tell you you can snort it, right? Snuff. This was a common thing years ago. Uh, early part of last century and before snuff, it really isn't done much anymore. It was partially done to get a bit of a nicotine buzz and partially done because people like to sneeze. Because it makes you sneeze. And some people really enjoy sneezing. I don't know. I hate sneezing. I think I'd rather puke. <laughs> really, that's over with the sneezing. You <laughs> don't like it. And of course, you can smoke. The nicotine itself vaporizes and you inhale. This is by far the most common method of cigar cigarettes pipes. <coughs> and I think you probably knew these things. So it's absorbed in the mouth and the lungs. And this is one of the things that people that smoke cigars and pipes will tell you it's not bad for them because they don't inhale. Um, first of all, if you look at the behavior of people that, let's call it chronically use tobacco, Okay, that, that are smoking cigars and pipes very often do inhale um, a little bit. But also, the temperature that the, the smoke is in a cigar or a pipe is much lower than a cigarette, uh, which actually encourages the absorption of nicotine through the mucous membranes in the, in the mouth. So you're actually getting a pretty good... If you've ever smoked a cigar... Who's here smoked a cigar? Out of curiosity, anybody? What's wrong with you people? See, just us. We're just... Um, you will get a buzz out of it even if you weren't inhaling it. Right? And of course, then there's a pipe. Right? I remember when I was at Western and there was a sociology professor and she would uh, always go out and have smokes with her students between classes and stuff and she smoked a pipe which had a level of coolness to it, I thought, which was pretty awesome. Um, also, when they banned smoking on campus, she kept smoking her pipe and it was like daring people to do something and they never did anything, which I thought was kind of funny. So it goes to the blood, obviously, to the heart, which pumps it to the brain, right? You know how blood goes to your heart and gets pumped? That's, that's nothing really to do. And the amount of nicotine to your brain depends on the smoking method. Um, so, as I said, a cigarette, you're inhaling it, it's going to be quicker than uh, a pipe or, or, or a cigar. So that's going to be quicker because it's going directly to the lungs, a lot more of the smoke, right? Uh, it's interesting that, so the amount of smoke is one of the most important things. Now, one of the things that cigarette smokers are very good at is called titrating their dose. Um, each smoker has their own sort of dose they need to get rid of withdrawal symptoms and get enough of a little tiny bit of a buzz. So light cigarettes, for example, don't do anything. It doesn't, in fact, that's one of the reasons that, that, that Health Canada has removed 
the ability for uh, cigarettes to be called lights or extra lights. Right? They have, have new names like rich and smooth. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it's kind of silly because it's not, I don't think, I don't think a lot of smokers, though I'm, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think a lot of smokers thought, oh, these are the healthy ones. <laughs> oh, these are fine. These are the ones that don't make me choke as much, maybe. Uh, actually, that's the thing, though. If you give a smoker who smokes, say, players, whatever they call lights, which are, I believe, now called rich or smooth or something, and you give them a player's plane, which no one smokes anymore because they have no filters on them. Those are man cigarettes. Those are, those are the kind of guys in the, in, in the World War II smoked, you know. They just don't, they'll take one drag off of it that is really, really intense like they would normally on a lighter cigarette, which the only measure of lightness is how tight the back was packed. That's all it is, it's how many the filter. They'll take one like that, <coughs> like that, and then they'll just draw the right amount that's exactly the same as when they're smoking the same amount of nicotine in the smoke as they do when they're smoking their players' extra lights, which I think are called, I don't know what they're called now. I remember when that first happened, I said to the person behind the counter there, so is that, they think that I'm dumb? Oh, these ones are light, so they don't have as much calories or they don't eat with <laughs> butter. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, please. Here was this one woman I knew. She was a nurse, and she was older, so this is what shocked me the most about it. She would only smoke her cigarettes down halfway because she said most of the cancer was in the body. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Like, I heard that. Because the, the cancer, uh, you know, when the, when the tobacco companies put the cancer in, um, the cancer's in all of it. That's great. Uh, you do get more, when you, the, 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 one of the things that does happen um, because of the fact that it's burning, um, which will just, by definition, kind of compress the thing, just, just simple physics, right? That when... If you butter that and sit for later and relight it, you're actually going to get a really big shot very quickly, right? That's why, like, when you see people smoking, you know, like homeless people smoking cigarette butts kind of thing, they're actually getting really big hits of nicotine very quickly. But ultralight cigarettes are interesting. Ultralight cigarettes actually do pre- provide less smoke. How do they do this? They do this by having little vents in the, in the filter, and the, most of the smoke actually goes out the side of the cigarette. Now. If people actually, and you might say, well, that's actually pretty good then. At least that is an alternative. It's not healthy, but it's not as much. So no matter how hard you suck, you can't get as much as you would off a cigarette that is invented. The problem is that, and of course the tobacco companies want to say this, um, and indeed when you look at the, the, there's actually a smoking machine. This is how these things are rated. On the side of a pack of cigarettes, it says how much nicotine and tar and everything's in each cigarette, or in each average puff. There's actually a machine that just draws it, and it's a—it's almost like a what's the word I'm looking for? Like a hypodermic needle, right? It's hooked up with a syringe, and it just sucks air in. The thing is, when ultralight cigarettes are done that way, they actually do draw less. The problem is that's not how people smoke them. So the behavior is what matters. For most people, there's a couple things they do. A buddy of mine used to do smoking research, and he found people smoke ultralight cigarettes, and then he said, "Why?" They said, "Why do you smoke these?" And they said, "Well, they're more healthy." Right? How do you smoke these cigarettes? Well, I put my lips over those vents to get all the smoke in my mouth. <laughs> there was even a guy he found that actually literally carried around a thing of masking tape, and before he started smoking, he just taped them up, and then he'd smoke it. So in fact, if they were actually, if you could somehow enforce that people smoke these with a directive, they would kind of be more, I hate to say more healthy, they'd be less hazardous. But 
no one smokes in that way, so it doesn't really matter. It's like saying, you know, light beer's better for you. If you have 17 light beers, you're still drunk. You gotta pee a lot, but you're still drunk, right? So it's kind of silly. So ultralight cigarettes just an interesting uh, thing to point out. They still don't really matter, for example. Um, of course, nowadays we have many other ways of doing this. There's the, uh, the gum, <coughs> nicotine gum, which uh, and lozenges inside. And these are done typically, and you're not supposed to swallow that saliva either. You're also not supposed to chew nicotine gum like regular gum. You will get ill from that, and you'll get heartburn and stuff. You're supposed to just put it in your mouth and take a bite when you have a craving for a cigarette. And then the saliva, you get absorb it into your mucous membranes. So it's exactly like, like um, chewing tobacco. Uh, patch, of course, works on your uh, through diffusion through your, through your skin. Which always reminds me of Presley the Clown having them all over his body and then telling his assistant there's a place on my, in my butt that I haven't got a patch. Please put one there. These are pretty effective uh, replacement techniques. And there's others now, too. There's nicotine vaporizers, um, so-called e-cigarette, if you've seen these, which actually feel like a cigarette in your hand, and there's a little cartridge you put in of nicotine, and an uh, electric current actually burns the nicotine. Looks like people are smoking flashlights. Yeah, they look like they're smoking flashlights, um, and there actually isn't any smoke, which is nice. Um, so I, mean, I remember a guy a couple years ago, I was teaching intro psych, and he was trying to quit smoking. He, was, he had one in class, and it was... After class, I went, why are you killing He said, oh, it's one of those e-cigarettes. I said, oh, okay, I thought you were sucking on a pen. <clears throat> there used to be a link there about the history of tobacco, but um, link's dead, sadly. Uh, tobacco history is actually pretty fascinating. Because that's what that was, right? Do you have the notes in front of you? Wasn't there a link there? Is that what it was? Because, of course, as you know, it came from North America. And here's a, this is an amazing video. It's very funny. I won't get the good sound here, but you know Bob Newhart, right? He's a comedian. He's now ancient. This is from the early 1960s. He's talking to Walter Raleigh. An error occurred. No, that's enough of that thing. So we'll just. Well, now we got to reload it? Piece of crap. Oh, I've lost my internet connection. Even better! I think this was Windows. Wouldn't matter right now. I think it's the internet connection itself. you, you got to see this. i gotta, I, I got to do this. It's too, hilarious. it's too hilarious to miss. This better... Yeah, see, I've lost my connection. This better be good. Now, if, it isn't, if you don't like it, then you guys all suck. Okay, let's just do that. And then do that. Talk amongst yourselves. Um, let's see here. Come on. There we go.
I mean, it's kind of, when you think about it, it is actually kind of silly, um, which is what he's pointing out there. Where are we here? Uh, yeah. Slideshow, play from the slide. Uh, of course, it was seen by um, explorers. The, the first European smoker was one of Columbus's crews, one of Columbus's crew members. And in fact, he brought uh, tobacco back with him to the New World. And um, of course, also Sir Walter Raleigh, but it was... The first person, first white person to see it was, was, was Columbus, um, and he brought it back. And then, you know, the rest is history. Um, how does this stuff work? That's where we are, right? <coughs> Good. Um, well, there are nicotine receptors in a lot of places. Cortex. This shouldn't surprise you because smokers um, will report that they, are, they, they can think more clearly when they're smoking. The basal ganglia, that's a connection, that's sort of the base of your cortex, the connection between places like the limbic system and the cortex. We're talking about sort of arousal, things like that there. Oh, look. The ventral tegmental area, that's part of your reward system. As my dad, a nucleus accumbens, my dad used to say, I don't care anybody says, cigarettes taste good. And I think what he meant was that they make you feel good. Once you get past the coughing the first few times you try it. Boy, these are great. <coughs> so there's your reward system right there. Right? The only thing we're missing is the medial forebrain bundle. <coughs> Which is right by the basal ganglia, by the way. So it's not surprising that people smoke. 
And again, this fits in so nicely with the reward uh, reinforcement other based model of drug taking because if it's directly giving you a rewarding uh, sensation and you, people know it's bad for them. <clears throat> it's not like anybody thinks that they're fine. That's probably somebody out there. Indeed, uh, you know, uh, when tobacco was first brought to the old world, from the new world, um, <laughs> it was the case that people uh, thought of it as like a medicine, a cure-all. No, this stuff's great. It can cure all kinds of things. It's good for colds. And some of that they actually learned uh, from the people here who used to use it as medicine, right? Still do. Um, for, for things like earaches. Now, there's a reason for that. Uh, it would actually make you feel kind of good. Right? Okay. There are uh, peripheral nervous system effects. We get tremors from, from smoking. So ask a smoker to hold their hand out straight when they have just had a couple of puffs, and they can't. Their, their hands shake a little bit. You get inhibition uh, of really all kinds of uh, different peripheral nervous system things so they can't move as well and stuff like that. That seems odd, but it's really disinhibition that's happening. You get constriction of blood vessels, which is one of the things that explains why smokers have cold extremities. You can usually tell if somebody smokes, even if they don't smell like cigarettes and have like yellow hands, if you shake their hand and their, hand is, their hands are cold. It isn't a dead giveaway. <clears throat> Excuse me, it isn't a dead giveaway. But it's more often the case. And of course, there are CNS effects as well. We talked already about the reward system. It causes the release of norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin. In other words, it's a stimulant. Basically, it causes a release of, of, of monoamines, right? In the central nervous system. If it's a stimulant, you might ask, why do people smoke to relax? And in fact, a smoker will often tell you, and you'll see people when they're nervous, before they're nervous, they smoke. As I said, it used to be that you could smoke all over universities. Well, pretty much anywhere, but you could you could always tell when it was final exam season. If you were going into exams, because they'd always be sucking on cigarettes just before they went into their exam. Now it's a stimulant, and people smoke to relax. This is actually has a name. It's called Nesbitt's paradox. It's a paradox. I guess that the first guy that thought he'd give it his name to it would be Nesbitt. Right. And I think I've mentioned this before. It's like everybody knew this, and this guy wrote it down and say, put his name to it. It's always kind of bugging me. Right? It's like something people have known forever. I'm going to give it a name. I'll call it Nesbitt's Paradox. So from now on, if it rains when it's sunny out, like the sun shower, call that Brodbeck's Paradox, because it didn't have a name till now. <laughs> but it is an interesting question. Why would you take a stimulant to calm down? We've gone already gone through. Clearly, it's a stimulant. <coughs> it's a PNS stimulant. Look, it makes your hands shake if you take it. I mean, that's usually a pretty good indication of a stimulant, right? It causes the release of all these monoamines in the central nervous system. It's a stimulant. Is it the physical act of smoking itself? So, in other words, does that distract people because they're doing something else 
from whatever it is they're nervous about. Well, it seems reasonable. And there's a whole ritual to it, right? Because there's a, a method. You have to get your smokes out. You have to find your lighter. Put one in your mouth. There's actually stuff you have to think about doing. So maybe it distracts you. Is, is it just getting rid of the withdrawal symptoms? I should mute my sound. I get like a thousand emails a day, so there we go. Um, is it just the withdrawal symptoms being taken away? We'll talk about withdrawals, but the withdrawal symptoms from nicotine um, are kind of unpleasant. So maybe they're having withdrawal symptoms, which is leading to their anxiousness, their anxiety. Anxiousness. Here's a better explanation. <laughs> there are, it turns out there are nicotine receptors uh, in the GABA system. So GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, um, there are nicotine receptors throughout the GABA system. This was just discovered pretty recently. In fact, I found out about this by accident one day. I was at a conference. Uh, I was at Canadian Society for Brain Behavior and Cognitive Science. And my friend Duncan was at Canadian Psychological Association. They kind of meet roughly at the same time. We are both in Vancouver, and I didn't want to go to CPA because it just doesn't interest me, typically. Um, there isn't a lot of cool brain stuff, and there isn't a whole lot of cognition stuff, stuff like my area. But Duncan was a social psychologist. He wanted to go to that. But he said, oh, here's a talk on evolutionary, psycho evolutionary social psychology. We should both go to that. I said, yeah, but... Cost 200 bucks to get in. He said, just walk in. <coughs> you think they're going to stop you? Then he was right. We just sort of walked in like we owned the place. He had paid. And this guy starts talking. He said, oh, damn, I think the wrong talk. I said, be quiet. He's talking about something that's cool. And it turned out he, this is a guy, a Canadian guy, I think at University of Saskatchewan, that found out that there are these nicotine receptors in the GABA system. In other words, it's a stimulant and it's also a depressant at the same time. It's a wonder drug. So, in fact, it does calm you down. Huh. That's kind of cool. <coughs> and it explains Nesbitt's paradox. Smoking improves performance, and by performance, I'm talking about cognitive performance. Uh, and, and, and perceptual things in smokers. A non-smoker, it's not going to help because they're too busy coughing. Right? But smokers, in fact, do better at cognitive sort of vig and vigilance tasks, <coughs> things like this. And vigilance is like the keeping the uh, dial in the right place uh, or, or, the, or the arrow on the screen. You're moving around with the, with the arrow keys. Um, <coughs> memory tests, things like that. Smokers actually do significantly better than, uh, when they're smoking than when they're not smoking. What about ex-smokers? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I think it probably depends on how long it's been since you smoked. And of course, the other problem is smoking is one of those things where it really is pleasurable when you get past the coffee. It really is fun to smoke. Right? If you ever smoke, people here have ever smoked. You know that. It actually feels good. It's there are receptors in your freaking nucleus accumbens. Of course it feels good. So it's very rewarding very quickly, and there's a pretty good chance I think you probably start smoking again. Then it gets an issue. 
It increases spontaneous motor activity in rats. Now, in this case, clearly we're doing injections. We're not giving rats little tiny cigarettes. Or the more sophisticated ones, little tiny pipes. With their little tube jackets with patches on their arms. Those are the sort of more English professored rats. Yes? Spontaneous motor activity. Running around a lot. How do you measure that? Talked about this before. Big open field, which is just a four-way sheet of plywood with um, photo beams on it. And you see when they break, how many photo beams they break. That's all it is. Well, it's a stimulant. This really shouldn't surprise us. Right? Would secondhand smoke have to smoke? Secondhand smoke, uh, probably in high concentrations, it might get. Yeah, we'll talk about secondhand smoke because it, it, it has to. It's, it's pretty clear it's not very good for anybody. But the is it as bad as it's made out to be may not be. May not be. But it's a public health thing, so probably you know want to err on the side of being careful. But I would doubt you aren't getting as much. The nicotine hit you get from secondhand smoke is pretty small. I mean, unless you're in a in an enclosed room and I'm blowing smoke in your face, like maybe you've got some kind of hermetically sealed jar on your head. I mean, yeah, that would be like smoking. But if two people in this room were having cigarettes right now, please don't, because we could all get in a great deal of trouble, um, especially you. The chance of that you're getting a nicotine hit off, that's pretty slim. I mean, the worries there are more are not the nicotine itself, but the other crap that's in the, in, in, in the cigarette. Yeah. That's a neat idea, though, trying to do secondhand smoke research in rats. Hmm. That's neat. I don't know how you do it. But it's cool. I don't know if it's theoretically interesting at all. I just think it's cool. <laughs> Which is exactly the wrong way to approach research. Right? So many honors thesis students get this from Lori Bloomfield because she runs our thesis course, the psychology one. The first question that they get asked the first day of class when they present their honors thesis idea, Lori asks everybody the same question. So who cares? She's asking your theoretical idea, right? She's not like. And usually people's ideas, well, I thought it was cool. <laughs> but secondhand smoke, it's spontaneous motor activity in rats is actually pretty neat. It suppresses operant behavior. Operant behavior is uh, learned. Uh, like bar pressing and that stuff, it suppresses it for a while, which means it makes it less likely to happen. So you look at, the beautiful thing about operant behavior is you're actually getting uh, a rate, like you're getting a measurement. So it's how many times per minute the animal, say, pushes a bar to get food. You then, the nice thing is, then you can do something else, whatever that something else may be, and those of you who took learning know you might shock the rat, which decreases responding, things like that. Um, so in fact, when you first give rats nicotine, it suppresses their operant responding. But then the operant responding picks back up. This made, that sounds to me very typically like just behavioral tolerance. You're now used to having nicotine. Right? So you operate pretty much normally. You being in this case a rat. Uh, withdrawal, well, withdrawal is almost always the opposite of the effects of the drug. You get a decreased heart rate. Nicotine does increase your heart rate. Mm. 
one of the reasons that you get heart disease from smoking is that your heart beats faster, but it also encourages the formation of plaques on arteries. So it beats faster, trying to pump blood faster through thinner <coughs> arteries. Great. Increased appetite, because smoking is an appetite suppressant, like a lot of stimulants are. Right? And I have heard told, I have been told this, that there are young women that smoke, and the biggest, so they don't eat so much. I didn't know this was true. I've been told this, however, by many young women. And it actually explains why, for years now, the fastest growing cohort of smokers is women in their 20s. In the Western world. Not like Western Europe, North America. Uh, not in places like um, Asia, where uh, the tobacco companies have pretty much changed their uh, focus to go over there. Because, you know, there's a billion two smokers in India, potentially. And a billion five in China, potentially. Let's get them all smoking. Uh, people have an inability to concentrate. If it focuses you, we said that before, it's going to cause trouble with concentration. Uh, people have trouble with sleep. Your sleep patterns get disrupted. Remember, smokers aren't... See, unlike a lot of other drugs, smokers take this drug all day. Right? So they, their body has changed the way it sleeps. Right? Your body kind of adjusts. Most people don't just smoke. There are people that smoke uh, just when they're drinking. Those people do exist, or just on weekends. Right? Their, their favorite brand is OPC, other people's cigarettes. Right? Um, but for most people that smoke, the problem is that, so your sleep patterns get changed because it, it screws with REM. Now we have, to re, we have to just correct everything. And this is usually over chronic use of years when people aren't, aren't smoking, right? So when, you can see why it's unpleasant to quit smoking. People literally, you can measure anger. There's a lot of ways to do this. There's just simple questionnaires. There's also um, getting people to, you know about the Milgram experiment? Yeah. Right, shocking people when they make a mistake. Right, you all probably learned that in intro psych. Um, well, what you do, you can actually do this experiment, but people have to know that they're really going to get shocked. You don't deceive people. And you say, okay, when this guy makes a mistake, you can shock him. It's not a too bad a shock. It's unpleasant, but it's not. It's nothing that's going to hurt anybody badly. And then you just measure how long they keep pushing the button, how long the shock. And people that are, that are smokers that are going through withdrawal will give longer shocks than non-smokers and smokers that are not quitting. So people literally, it's a literally an actual psychological, physiological effect is the increased anger in people that are quitting smoking. People get depressed. The sort of I don't want to get out of bed kind of feeling. It's not the same level as, you know, major depressive disorder. The feelings of worthlessness, uh, all these things, people will score higher on what's called the Beck Depression Inventory, which is a depression scale. Um, they don't necessarily score the same as someone who actually has major depressive disorder, but they do score higher than they would if they were still smoking. People crave cigarettes. This is the withdrawal symptom that lasts longer than any of these other ones. Most of these go away decently enough, quickly enough, within a week or two. But they're exceedingly unpleasant for those few weeks 
right? Exceedingly unpleasant to be angry, you can't sleep, you can't concentrate. That's not fun. But you get over that. What you don't get over is the feeling that you are craving for a cigarette, which is something that can't be explained to somebody if they've never smoked. Uh, the best explanation I've ever heard is my father said it's like a combination of being thirsty, hungry, and horny all at once. And you can physically feel it. Like, I need this. If I just had this, I would, it would go away and I would feel wonderful. Uh, people have reported having nicotine cravings 13 years after quitting smoking. Uh, my dad quit smoking a long time ago. He quit in 1995. He had a heart attack. So that usually is enough of a wake-up call. <laughs> so he quit smoking. I remember asking, dad died in 2008 of brain cancer, but I remember asking him in, in like 2007, you still want to have cigarettes now? And he goes, yeah, every, every goddamn day. He didn't, but he wanted one all the time. He's wanted it. He'd been smoking since he was 15. And again, back then, it was the 1950s. You come home, your parents are smoking, and one day at breakfast, you light up a cigarette. And my, apparently, my, my grandmother's only concern was, Richard, it's going to stunt your growth. My dad said, Mom, I'm six foot two already, and I'm 15. I, I could use having my growth stunted. And that was the end of it. From then on, smoke away. It's a different world. Dave, quick yeah. question. Yeah. Whenever I attempt to quit smoking, yes. I have a massive, weird energy burst. Like, I just can't sit still. Yeah, that's the sort of agitation. Oh, is that the next slide? <laughs> well, it's not the next slide. Uh, yeah, you do, there are sort of, there is the idea of, of depression, but you also, people get agitated. Because part of that might simply be, because that doesn't sound like the opposite of being stimulated, right? But that might simply be the fact that you don't, there's a thing you used to do and it's replacing behavior. Right? So it may just simply be that. But yeah, people do report agitation. I should also point out that um, people's appetites increase. The average smoker gains about 5 kilograms, about 10 pounds of smoking. However, most ex-smokers do not gain weight. You're thinking, huh? How's that work? It means that some people gain a lot of weight. Okay? So some people really pack it on for the rest of us. For the average. Is it just like the food appetite yeah. that increases, or yeah. is there like other major things? No, no, it's like people eat more. Okay. People eat more. And again, part of that is the fact that it's, a, it's, a, it's an appetite suppressant. And part of that is it, it replacing, it's doing something, right? Dave. Yeah. I know like a couple friends of mine smoke. I was just wondering, doesn't it like remove uh, taste? Oh, yeah. It does all kinds of things to the inside of your mouth. So couldn't, like, when people are putting the increased appetite, be the high thing? It may even play a role as well. That's a good point, Alex, because, I mean, people will, it sort of, uh, and this isn't surprising, you're actually making the inside of your mouth like an oven all the time. So what's happening is it's, it's destroying tissue all the time. Right? So when people quit smoking, they do report that food tastes better. So that's an, that is a good point. That's another reason. The other thing that happens when you smoke is uh, when you quit smoking, your salivary glands really get damaged horribly by smoking because you've got all this hot gas in your mouth all the time. Right? So people actually, that's another reason why food tastes better probably is because it's easier to eat because your salivary glands kind of repair themselves and you can spit more. Is that from smoking anything? 
Yeah. But again, see, people always think about, say, uh, smoking weed and smoking tobacco and putting them together. Nobody smokes weed to the same level anybody smokes. Well, there are people like that, but those people are, you know, that's professional. That's, that's, most of those guys are on the pro snowboarding tour. I mean, that's, uh, now, I mean, nobody smokes 20 joints a day. And if they are, they're smoking really lousy weed because you'd be so stoned all the time that you wouldn't be able to find your weed after a few, right? So, I mean, you know, there was a time when THC wasn't, the THC content marijuana wasn't so high, early, you know, mid, early 70s, where people probably did smoke that, that much marijuana, but it, it would be hard to do today. Today, in the day of, you use a one-hitter, and you go, whole line of stuff. So I'm told. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it, I did not inhale. It's not true. I don't think it was true for him, and it certainly isn't true for me. Um, well, I was going to say something else about these. No, that's good. Uh, the smoking behavior itself is just interesting. Uh, after lunch and dinner, people, uh, there's a daily pattern of almost all smokers that these always happens after lunch and dinner. And indeed, it's the case that those are the hardest ones after meals in general. Not everybody smokes in the morning that smokes. But almost everybody that smokes has one after if they eat lunch and after dinner. Now, it's interesting that, yeah, these are the hardest ones to give up. People smoke with other smokers. This was even true back before smokers had to go outside to specially designated zones. Right? You ever seen that episode of the IT crowd? When Jen takes up smoking, yeah, and it's like she's in some sort of post-nuclear apocalypse and she goes outside to smoke because she's around all the other smokers. Everybody should watch that show over and over. Netflix is fun. They're more likely than non-smokers to use other drugs. Now, again, I think this is probably risk-taking behavior. No one ever talks about cigarettes being a gateway drug. But it's general risk-taking behavior, though. Because people know it's not good for them. It has a negative correlation with socioeconomic status. The poorer you are in general, the more likely you are to smoke. That's for groups. You can't predict an individual based on their socioeconomic status. The drug, drug taking behavior in general is like this. We've talked about this before. All right. The demand for, for nicotine is pretty much inelastic. Uh, the older you are. The nice thing is, then you might think, well, then why raise the price? Why not keep them around four bucks a pack instead of the 10 or 11 they are now? Well, that stops kids from smoking. Right? See, because to me, I mean, I'm not, gonna, I'm not rich or anything, but 10 bucks isn't really a big deal to me. When you're 11, 10 bucks is a lot of money. Like, it's a lot of money. You don't get 10 bucks for, you might get 10 bucks in allowance, maybe. Right? So 10 bucks actually means something. So, in fact, raising the price, the nice thing that that's done is you get less people starting smoking. I imagine if you made them $25 a pack, demand would become elastic again. 
for adults. Right? You might think, why not, why not do that? Well, then you get smuggling and all this stuff just won't work. So it has to be somewhat going along with the price of other goods. Do people titrate their doses? I mentioned that. Probably they do uh, when they're smoking. So if you give somebody another brand of cigarettes, they have a different amount of uh, how much it's packed. So people probably do this. This is probably one of the things that people are trying to keep a constant dose of nicotine. It's harder and harder now, of course, because most places you can't smoke anymore. Right? Are people using it as a psychological tool? Probably they are. Um, so, in other words, to help them concentrate, to calm themselves down. In other words, they're using it as a drug, but not just as a recreational drug. They're also using it as a drug that has uh, these, these other effects that, you know, despite the cancer, are actually desirable. Increased concentration, etc. Do people like having a nicotine bolus? In other words, a big hit of bolus, a bunch of stuff in your mouth. A big hit of nicotine. Yes, they probably do. So all of these things are things that happen when people are smoking. Now, quitting smoking, uh, most people actually quit on their own. <coughs> Even with all the help that's out there, most people quit on their own. Most, the average person takes about eight times before it sticks. So really the, the message there is keep trying. <coughs> right? You want to smoke, go ahead, but it's probably better for you if you stop. But everybody knows that. Um, behavior therapy has been very effective. Um, basically here, it simply involves the idea of you counting how often you smoke and when you smoke and trying to stay out of the situations you smoke in. Indeed, the easiest time to quit smoking is when you've just moved. Because you don't associate any part of your place where you live with smoking. Right? Uh, substitution therapy has been used quite a bit, and of course that's things like using a patch or a gum, lozenge, e-cigarettes, all these kind of things. Wasn't it just in the news recently that... Um yeah, in fact, that there is a there is there are new data out recently that say that most of that stuff doesn't work any better than just quitting cold turkey on your own. Yeah, and I can tell you, for example, that massage therapy and lasers and acupuncture don't help anybody quit smoking. There's not even like a placebo effect? Do you think it's going to work? Oh, well, I can tell you this, that when you look at things like acupuncture, the average, the effectiveness of, of, of quitting on your own is about 18%. So any time, so like I said, first of all, it takes most people like eight tries. But on any given time, you have about a, about a one in, almost a one in five chance of quitting. Okay? Now, the effectiveness of acupuncture about 18%. <laughs> so I should tell you that there's really no effect whatsoever. I once ended up having an argument with a student who was in my intro psych class years ago. Because she asked about acupuncture. I said, uh, it is okay for some pain stuff beyond that. It's really, and it's got nothing to do with your chakras and your energy. Because there aren't any chakras and there is no energy. 
However, it does work with killing pain, and there's a really good physiological explanation for that. She said, Bert, help me quit smoking. I said, no, it didn't. I said, way to go quitting smoking, by the way. And she said, no, it helped me. I said, what did it cost out of curiosity? She said, but the treatment's cost about $800. I said, well, next time you want to do something, you give me 800 bucks, and I'll do nothing, and then we can do it with your own willpower, but I'll take 800 bucks. I said, you, 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 you think of it this way. Proud of yourself, and she, she was insistent. So she dropped the class, which is fine. I don't need your science. <laughs> How dare you tell me the truth? A self-monitoring in general, which goes along with the behavior therapy idea, this is what behavior therapists do. If you're a smoker, you'll be surprised how much you smoke. Almost all smokers underestimate, and it's not like they're trying to lie. It's not like it's when their wife comes up to them and says, "How much do you smoke?" and they go, "Oh, three a day." <laughs> you know, that's a lie. But people actually lie to themselves. They don't really realize how much they smoke. Um, so the nice thing you do is you keep a little notebook and you write down every time you smoke and what time of day it is. You'll find it very quickly how many you smoke. And you just plot it out. And then you plot out tomorrow that's less and less. It's very rewarding for people to see that curve go down. Right? So self-monitoring, in fact, is a very effective way, as anything else, for quitting smoking. Colon grows your look, smoking can actually be quite bad for you. It can lead to various lung diseases, bronchitis, uh, emphysema, lovely things like that. I don't know if you've heard this. Scientists have now found out it causes cancer. <laughs> Just came out, Surgeon General. Um, birth defects in kids. Now, again, I don't think pregnant women should smoke cigarettes because it's probably not a very good idea. It's clearly large amounts make birth defects more likely. However, if it, all kids of pregnant women had birth defects, there wouldn't be any humans left because everybody smoked up to about 30 years ago. I'm not saying you should start smoking when you're pregnant. Well, it's a lot of pressure. I think I'll take up smoking. I know. But, and I think seeing pregnant women smoking is really weird now. But again... If someone has the odd one, I wouldn't get, you know, a friend of mine in France, like I told you this, when they said, when they got pre- when wife was pregnant, and the doctor said, you know, one glass of wine, maybe two a day is okay, and if you smoke, cut down to maybe five a day. <laughs> They're much more civilized and sensible, I think, in France. Again, I don't think you should smoke when you're pregnant. Uh, at least the heart disease, of course, or the carbon monoxide you're sucking in, um, and the nicotine making the heart beat faster for no apparent reason, and then the arterial walls getting smaller because of plaques building up all lead to heart disease. Is it the nicotine itself that causes this, or is it everything else that's in this? Uh, the nicotine itself is actually basically doing this. And well, the carbon monoxide that you're sucking in makes your heart beat faster because you're trying to get air, oxygen. But the nicotine itself actually is making your heart beat faster. That's just an effect of nicotine. It's a stimulant. Now, secondhand smoke um, is an interesting thing because this started, again, about 20 years ago, maybe a little less than that. And as I said here, apparently saying the word cigarette can kill everyone around you. I'm being a little sarcastic. Um, I think the important thing to do here is look at the science. And This was all started in about 1988. The World Health Organization 
uh, started out by doing a, a study of people with lung cancer versus healthy people. Because there was an idea that secondhand smoke was bad for you. It was clear that firsthand smoke was obviously bad for you. Or secondhand smokers, people call it passive smoking, to make it sound worse, I guess. I think secondhand smoke is a better description than passive smoking. How is it passive? It's not passive, you're still breathing. So when this study came out, and that's what, that's what banned smoking, that's what people started having smoking bans in bars and stuff like that. Um, very interesting stuff. For people who had cigarettes in their home or at work, but didn't smoke themselves. Okay. Now again, we can say, well, how do we know that? Well, it's the best <coughs> we can do. The risk ratios, now one means the average person who doesn't smoke cigarettes. Okay, you just set that at one. And the risk, risk, risk ratios were at 1.16 if they had it in their home and 1.17 at work. So it goes up by 20%, right? Rough, well, let's make it 0.2 because that's close enough to 1.2 with the margin of error. So let's call it, it goes up by 20%. So you're 20% more likely <clears throat> to get lung cancer right, if you live with a smoker or work in a place where people smoke. Wow. That's pretty striking. Anybody notice anything about those data, though? They're comparing smokers to smokers. That's fine. Well, these are all not smokers. Oh. Plus or minus 1.25. Yeah, actually, it might be the case, and I know this isn't true, but it might be the case this, this says that, in fact, it's good for you. Because 1.16 minus 0.25 says that you're less likely to get lung cancer. There's no way that's true. That's ridiculous. It's impossible. But those are not convincing data. Now they all go in the it goes in the right direction, and all the stuff since has gone in the same direction, which makes it pretty damn clear that it's bad for you. <coughs> Don't misunderstand me. Okay. And the same thing happened. Then the states, the EPA, of course, the Federal Protection. Uh, did a, a study, they had a meta-analysis, this is at the time, this is in the, in the early 90s, of 11 uh, studies, and there's obviously a lot more now, and 10 of those studies actually found no significant, statistically significant effect, okay, <coughs> of secondhand smoke on health, uh, the cancer emphysema, the statement. Now, however, that's a point, you understand you know, 0.05 level. You should have all taken statistics. Right? So there's only a 5% chance. That's when we, when we draw the line in these things. So there's only a 5% chance something happened by chance. So these were all around 0.1. A 10% chance. Now the thing is, if it's always in the same direction. So people that are like saying that secondhand smoke, there's no problem with it, are being disingenuous. They're being disingenuous because if there really was no problem, we would expect it to be haphazard and always go in opposite directions. Right? Like as many show an effect as show no effect or show that effect the other way, that somehow it's good for you. We wouldn't expect these 10 studies all found no statistically significant effect, but they all found an effect in the same direction. You understand what I mean? It'd be like saying, if it, like if, for example, if you had a coin and you flipped it ten times, you got six heads. You wouldn't think that was a fixed coin. 
But if you had 100 coins and they all turned up six heads, or seven, because seven wouldn't be a 0.05 either, you would get this, this, something about this batch of coins, maybe I should flip them more than 10 times. So this is a matter of statistical power that was the problem here. So the people that are saying there's something wrong with secondhand smoke, I think you're being a little disingenuous. Um, some of that, but, but some of those people, by the way, are actually funded by big tobacco, so we can, they probably are. There's also people that are very reasonable, generally people, but I think they just want to be able to smoke it. However, they have a point that it wasn't statistically significant. They're right, but you have to look at the fact that it's always going in the same direction. Um, one of the studies, in fact, in the meta-analysis, the one that had the closest thing to a significant effect was actually incomplete, and they put it in. So it was not a very well-done piece of work, this meta-analysis. Uh, and then there was a, pa a paper by Wald in 1997 had pretty much the same problems. It's not the Wald paper or the EPA paper themselves, I guess. It's the fact that the data never show at a 0.05 level. But they always go in the same direction. They always go in the same direction. So, I mean, again, I, I, do, I, I, I do not think... <coughs> I got a funny text from our guy fixing her bathroom. Sorry. I shouldn't take texts in class. It's my own freaking class. I don't care. Just got my bathroom redone. It's awesome. And then go to have a shower, and it's like, it's all hot water. There's lukewarm water. You just sent me a thing that said, adjust it. You could now boil a lobster in your bathroom. So, <laughs> so that's what I want to hear. Um, it's something that, this is made out to be something completely clear, and it isn't. That's, but it's public health, and I think we are on the side of caution. Right? So I'm not saying it's good for you. I hope you understand that. And I'm not saying there's no effect. That would be silly. Right? It's the same thing when, they, when you look at boil orders in, in isolated communities uh, in this part of the world or pretty much every community in Newfoundland on water. Uh, they weren't using 0.05, and I'm glad they didn't use 0.05 because I don't want to crap to death you know, by getting uh, Giardia poisoning. I'd rather have the inconvenience of maybe a false positive in boiling my water for 20 minutes now and then before I drink it. And let it be cool. You know, drinking boiling water. That's why newfies are so angry. They drink a lot of boiling water. No, I'm kidding. That they've boiled lobsters in. See, it all comes full circle. Um, I want people being safe about public health. It's just not the, it's not the huge effect I don't think it's made out to be. So what I'm saying is, and this is especially true, I think, in enclosed spaces, I think we have something that's pretty clear. Outside? Outside? Now, I don't like seeing people, I find it really disgusting seeing somebody, I remember actually posting on Twitter when I was taking my, my son out for Halloween, that's really classy having a smoke going when you're taking your kid out for Halloween. You look like an idiot. And I don't really want to smell cigarette smoke when I got my kid out everywhere. But it's not like anybody's getting going to get cancer from it. We live in a steel town. <laughs> you know? Now, it's the same thing. Like, I don't like people smoking at the park. I just think it's weird. I think it's evil. But, or, or the beach, you know. Yeah? Um, something that doesn't really make sense to me is that 
you could own a private institution, yep. and the government will come in and say, you can't have people smoking in your private institution. Yes, that's right. But yet, people can, like, if I walk down the street in Toronto or Montreal where that's actually public property, yes. there's littered smoke everywhere. I can't walk down the street. I'm, like, coughing because I'm allergic to it. Right. So it's legal to smoke in a public place, but then the government places regulations saying it's illegal for you yeah. to have It's getting less and less legal to smoke in public places. Um, if you look at New York City, it has literally just banned smoking in New York City, basically. You can't smoke outside in New York. You li literally can't smoke outside. So you can only smoke in your house. It's the only place you're allowed to. Right? Um, so I think we're going that way. Uh, it is kind of paradoxical, it's true. But when it's public health, you know, I, I think that's like what I said, you know, erring on the side of caution. Um, like I said, I think the idea of, I remember uh, we had a, a, an email sent to us saying you can only smoke down in the back part of the university. And that's true. You're actually not supposed to smoke out anywhere else except the back part of Shinwar Hall. There's science. You know? And that's fine. And it's funny because we, the email was sent said it was for people's health. And I, I replied, just be honest. It's about aesthetics and you don't want cigarette butts on the ground. And I got no problem with that. I get that. But don't, because you, do you not care about people's health in the back part of the Shingwa Hall? It's aesthetics. I never got a reply. But I said, and if you want to start doing that, I think we bag bad haircuts and people that smell bad because they don't take enough showers or wear deodorant. Um, but let's go that way. I don't care, but just don't lie and say it's about people's health because if they're, you know, that's a little silly. Do you know anything about like smoking laws, say in apartment buildings that are actually like houses where there's downstairs and upstairs? I don't know, but I think no. I have a little, and those things are always they very province to province. Sometimes municipality to municipality. I'm just having trouble with like my new neighbors that moved in. I'm moving in April anyway, but they're smoking like chimneys up there. I got a baby in the house. My oh, grandmother geez. doing nothing, See, so I'm and so that's, pissed off because I can smell it downstairs. Yeah, and it may not even be shit. causing any harm to you or your kid at all. It may not be. It's, uh, it's in fact it probably. The harm is so small that it's probably doing nothing. But you know what? It's gross. It'd be like if they were constantly boiling fish. It's just bad behavior. My fiance smokes, but he goes outside. Goes outside, exactly. It's like, so why should we be imposed upon us? Yeah. Have you had what you asked them? Maybe not smoke so much. Oh, God, I already have to ask them about the partying, the drunken arguments, this and that. It's. Well, good time. Yeah, I know. So sounds awesome. Welcome to Sue St. Marie, Joey. I was at Calgary you know, 10 years ago when I still smoked. I enacted this funny bylaw that was short lived, but you, you could smoke in bars, but you couldn't smoke on patios. And I remember like being in a bar one night and going outside for a cigarette because it was so crowded and smoky. Yes. And there were literally bouncers waiting on the patio to kick the smokers back inside. That's awesome. That's well <laughs> thought of. That's well thought of legislation. Yeah, uh, it didn't I remember last very long. But in, in Kingston, where you can't even smoke on a patio bar, right? And you can go outside. But that's fine. You want to have your law, that's cool. Uh, but it was funny. So you had to go outside the patio and have a smoke. But so I'm out there and I was I one. And then over here is a friend of mine who I will not name, but he's a big time, he's a, he's a, he's a podcaster. That's all I'm going to say. You, you, some of you will be able to get, if you, those of you listening in on the internet, probably guess what this is. Is over off in the corner, within sight of the bouncer, smoking a joint. No one says a thing to him. He's doing something literally like he's, he's got a legal substance. I just think legal, but I shouldn't, you know, that's not good for me. I'm not it's bad, it's stupid, I'm an idiot. Uh, you know, you go out there, sir, 
okay, so I'm going to walk around here and talk to my friends at the table here. You know the guy there smoking weed, right? <laughs> it's interesting. Um, like I said, I, I, it is horrible. And it's a public health menace. And they, I am not the guy that blames big corporations for things, because I think um, I'm just not that guy. You know, the problem is it's the power of the corporation. I'm just not that guy. That's my uninformed dumb guy voice. It's the, you know, I don't occupy things. You want to do that? That's cool. But I'll tell you something. You know what? Tobacco companies are freaking evil. Like, they're evil. You think movie companies are bad because they target people and have them put in jail for downloading? That's nothing compared to people trying to get children to smoke cigarettes. For years, and then they swear before Congress, congressional committees in the States, I do not believe that nicotine is addictive. Like, they're off in the South because they're not Anything else? Wrap up. Alright, thanks, guys. Oh.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.